Okay, so please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. And uh, for those that might be interested to know, this will be the 22nd broadcast thus far from Acts of the Apostles. And each broadcast is running to around 26, 27 minutes. So I'll let you do the maths and work out just how much material has been covered thus far. But uh, I just want to make a few announcements before we get into Acts chapter 10 and complete, Lord willing, Acts chapter 10. First of all, the Bible is God's perfect blueprint for how things should be. But because we are imperfect people, we always miss the mark. And the Word of God says it very clearly that how we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So God cannot lower his standard. He cannot lower his holiness. But the problem is he can't allow us to be received unless someone or something comes in between us and that of course is where the mediator comes into the equation our blessed saviour so like i say acts chapter 10 will be the text that we're going to look at today but before we get to acts 10 i just want to give a quick recap as to the ground that we've covered over the last five months i think it's important to do this and just bear with me for a few moments if you will from acts chapter 1 we found three explicit references to the holy ghost we found three explicit references to heaven and we found one explicit reference to hell, which is the second to last verse. From Acts 2, the apostles had initially believed in the Lord and on the Lord. Then they were baptized by one another, by total emotion, of course. Then they all received the gift of speaking in tongues, which were known languages. The apostles explained to Jewish people in Jerusalem that arrived for the Jewish feast day of Pentecost that they, the Jewish people, must A, acknowledge Jesus is their Messiah, and B, that they are guilty along with the unclean and ungodly Gentiles for his public execution. And all this will make sense as we go through Acts chapter 10, so bear with me please. Those that accept this and turn to God, which is what repentance is, are saved. Yet no explicit reference to any one of the 3,000 Jewish believers is ever found in reference to anybody speaking in tongues. That's very important to note. From Acts chapter 3, about 5,000 Jewish people respond to Peter's call to repentance. Yet once again, nobody speaks in tongues, and no reference to anyone being baptized in the name of Jesus, unlike Acts chapter 2. The apostles for the second time are filled with the Holy Ghost, but not in reference to speaking in tongues, but to speak the word of God more openly and more boldly on the street. From Acts chapter 5, it says how the believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. But no Acts 2 or Acts 3 formula is cited. On top of sinners being healed spiritually, they are healed physically, and some even having unclean spirits cast out. The latter, however, is not found in Acts 2 or Acts 3. From Acts chapter 8, the Samaritans have to wait for the apostles to travel from Jerusalem to Samaria in order for them to receive everlasting life. And on top of that, the apostles had to literally lay their hands on the Samaritans to be saved. The text suggests that the Samaritans spoke in tongues as a result of the apostles laying their hands on them. But the Enoch... The Ethiopian eunuch doesn't need assistance from the apostles. Neither does he speak in tongues and doesn't join a local church. From Acts chapter 9, Paul probably got saved in verse 6. Ananias is dispatched by Jesus, not the apostles, to lay hands on him to regain physical sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Ananias baptizes him too, but no tongues and no clear formula was used. Example in the name of Jesus or Matthew 28 in reference to being baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. So please keep all those points in mind, because I've been making the case over the last several weeks now that Acts of the Apostles is a very difficult book to exegete. And in fact, it's almost impossible to harmonize. Now, I could read Acts of the Apostles in line with the Pauline epistles, but that's problematic. 
Also from Acts chapter 7, which we looked at a few weeks ago, I gave the scripture from, I think it was verse, uh, let's have a look now, Acts 7 verse 40, going into 41 in reference to the Jews making a calf and offering sacrifice unto the idol and rejoicing the works of their own hands. I made the case some weeks ago that because God in Hebrew is Elohim, and Elohim can be singular, and it can also be plural, I take the case very clearly and unequivocally and unapologetically that I believe that the Jews were creating an idol and calling it Jehovah. And I was reading uh, Nehemiah just a few nights ago, and some extra light uh, from the Word of God, that's why you were told to study, to show yourself approved unto God, and that's why you were told to use Scripture for Scripture, to get a fuller understanding of the text in question, And in Nehemiah chapter 9, the word of God tells us in verse 18, Yea, when they had made them a molten calf, and said, This is thy God, capital G, that brought thee up out of Egypt, a type of the world, and have wrought great provocations. Yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsook them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them the light, and the way wherein they should go. So very briefly, I take the position here that they made an image a calf and they said this is jehovah this is elohim this is yahweh whatever you wish to call him that separated you or that uh, got you out of egypt that allowed you to escape from uh, incarceration and that's why i take the view that we as bible believers shouldn't have images of god whether it be the father the son or the holy ghost so one more time and one final time from nehemiah nine eighteen. i can't stress this enough Yea, when they had made them a molten calf, singular, and said, This is thy God, singular, that brought thee up out of Egypt. You can't miss it, can you? And had wrought great provocations. Yet thou, in thy manifold mercies, forsookest them not in the wilderness. He could have discarded them. The word of God says, If you sin willfully, after you have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no more sacrifice for sins, but a fearful falling away of judgment. So on so forth. So he doesn't discard them. He doesn't destroy them. He allows them to continue on. That's his grace and his mercy we know is new and fresh each day. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day. There's the Shehina glory to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way wherein they should go. So just keep all those verses in mind. And like I said, I've got a lot of material to cover this morning, so please bear with me as I pull all these verses together. But what I've started off from this broadcast is to try and bring to your attention how Acts Apostles is a very tricky book to teach. And although the Old Testament greats believed on a promise, whereas in the New Testament we believe on a person, the person is the same as the promise. The person in the New Testament gave the promise in the Old Testament. So it's all the same, it's still grace, but the Old Testament greats came different routes. And those in the book of Acts are coming to the Lord in different ways. But it's still going to be grace. So keep all that in mind because... What I don't want anybody to struggle with, either from today's broadcast or previous broadcasts or broadcasts down the line, is that when they read the book of Acts, they think that unless they too are experiencing what we are looking at in the book of Acts, that somehow they are unsaved, would be missing the point altogether. So far, we are looking at the Jews reaching out to the Jews. Saved Jews reaching out to unsaved Jews, who then become saved Jews. Yes, we see the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts 8, He comes a different route to the Samaritans, also from Acts chapter 8. Then we find Paul the Apostle, known as Saul of Tarsus, coming a very different route via Ananias, not an apostle, but an associate of an apostle. And he gets physical healing and spiritual healing, and he's baptized. 
and off he goes preaching the word of God. But there's no reference to Saul of Tarsus ever speaking in tongues. Whereas the Samaritans, it is suggested anyway, as far as I can see, did speak in tongues. But from Acts 2.38, the Jewish recipients in Jerusalem that had gone up to worship on the day of Pentecost and got saved, we're told around 3,000, didn't speak in tongues. So you see, you can be so careful when you look at Acts of the Apostles. And I meet people in the streets who say to me, are you baptized in the Holy Ghost? I know exactly what they mean. What they're saying to me is, do you speak in tongues? And I say, well, listen, the Bible says, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and also Ephesians 4.4. 4. But speaking in tongues is problematic. And as we go through Acts of the Apostles, from probably, let's see now, Acts 11 to Acts 19, from memory, you won't find anybody speaking in tongues. But it was prevalent up until Acts chapter 10. And yet, as I've just spent the last seven moments outlining, very few people, very, very few people ever spoke in tongues. The apostles spoke in tongues because they were eyewitnesses to the Lord's ministry. They were also Jewish men. This is another problem, that women in the scripture don't speak in tongues. And that sounds somewhat uh, unfashionable to say. It doesn't sound very politically correct to say that. But the Bible's not a politically correct book. Like I said at the beginning of this message, the Bible is God's perfect blueprint. But we, the church, fall short of his glory. We, the church, make many mistakes when it comes to following the teachings of the scriptures. And that's why there are so many churches and so many groups within groups. Because mankind is trying to find his way to God. But the Bible tells us that Christ Jesus came to find us and bring us to God. So I think you've got the basic theme of what I'm trying to outlay this morning. I pray that the Lord God will bless today's broadcast. I pray that he'll bless this message, wherever it's being heard or broadcast around the world. And last time we ended in Acts 10, verse 43, and I'll read it again to set the context uh, to this message. Acts 10, verse 43. To him give all the prophets witness. That's the Old Testament. Comma, that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Now there you find two testaments coming together. You find the Old Testament in reference to the Old Testament prophets, starting from Samuel right up until probably Malachi, prophesying, speaking, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost about the coming Messiah. But the comma after witness is now the New Testament, that through his name, whosoever believeth in him, faith alone, shall receive, present tense, remission of sins. Now, what you can't do from this is get two Testaments running concurrent. You can't get the Old Testament running at the same time as the New Testament. The Old Covenant ends with Christ, and the New Covenant is initiated with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, please turn to Hebrews chapter 9. I've got a lot of material to cover today in just 30 minutes, so let's hope we can get everything covered. I think it's so important to take the time to look at these verses, because... I am a semi-dispensationalist, and that means quite simply this, that I believe that most of what you find in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is Old Testament teaching. And I say that because the New Testament, the New Covenant, doesn't start, it's not relevant, until Christ has died for our sins. But we can still take a lot of application from the four Gospels, especially John's Gospel, and apply it doctrinally, like, for example, the new birth in John chapter 3. You wouldn't want to spiritualize that. That is a literal commandment to be born again. But in Hebrews chapter 9, look at verse 16, please. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Did you get that? One more time, 16. For where a testament is, old covenant, there must also of necessity be the death 
of the testator going to the new covenant. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. If I were to write out a will today and say, when I die, I'll leave all that I have to person A, that isn't relevant until I die. So that's why you can't have the old covenants and the new covenant running at the same time. And that's where our Lordship Salvation people get egg on their face. They will take Old Testament verses and they will try and stick it on us. They will try and apply it to us doctrinally and say, have you turned more of your sins, for example? Or have you done this or have you done that? And it's always good to remind these people that the Old Testament also made it very clear that you had to keep the Sabbath and you had to abstain from certain foods and you had to dress a certain way. And if you were a man, you had to be circumcised. There are many rules and regulations back in the Old Testament, which comes under the Old Covenant. But the New Testament, the New Covenant, strictly speaking, doesn't start until Christ has died. So if you need any more uh, help with that, just look at a will. And that will give you the clearest way to understand how the Old Covenant dies with Christ and the New Covenant is initiated by his death on the cross. Mm-hmm. On top of that, you were shown in Matthew 28 that the Lord Jesus Christ came up out of the tomb the first day of the week, which is today, Sunday. We don't worship on Saturdays. Now, we could do, if you wanted to, and we know from Romans chapter 14 that we have the ability to meet on a particular day or not meet on a particular day, but the early church always met on a Sunday. We call it the Lord's Day. So hopefully you're getting what I'm saying and you're not uh, falling into the trap of having two covenants running simultaneously, running concurrently. If you do that, it's problematic. And if you do that, you're going to put yourself back under the law. You're going to backload the gospel. We live under grace, and that means we are saved in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. But let's start today's broadcast, if we may, and let's conclude Acts chapter 10, if we may, in verse 44. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans chapter 10. You want to be saved? You need to hear the word of God. And that's why we do street preaching. And sometimes street preaching is seen as uncouth. Sometimes street preaching is looked down upon. Sometimes street preachers are looked upon as being vermin. But the early church street preached. The apostles street preached. The prophets street preached. The Lord Jesus Christ was always speaking out in the open. So I would say that if you don't street preach, there's something wrong with you. But to be saved, you have to hear the word of God. That comes from an audible voice from a street preacher, such as myself. And I'm reading from the word of God. So you get me reading the word of God out loud. On top of that, I said earlier on that 1 Corinthians 12 makes it very clear that you got saved by being baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. You weren't baptized into the body of Christ by being baptized in water. And you weren't baptized in the body of Christ by going to church. You need to be born again. So when it says Peter yet spake these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. Who is this in reference to? Cornelius and Co. Peter's been sent for. He's been asked to go to Cornelius' house to witness to him. And off he goes to a Gentile's house. This is a great uh, turning point in the early church. The early church were predominantly Jewish, as I say. And for them to even associate with a Gentile is remarkable. But this is the era, this is the time when the middle wall of partition, Ephesians chapter 2, is being knocked down. There's no more Jew or Gentile. We know from Galatians chapter 3, if you're in Christ Jesus, you are positionally the same. But let's move on, please. 45, and they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came of Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. And they of the circumcision, Peter's companions, which believed, saved Jews, were astonished. Of course they were. They'd been told this would happen back in John 10, in reference to the Lord having other sheep 
that were not yet of his flock, in reference to the Gentiles, because that on the Gentiles also has poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. This will lead up to speaking in tongues. And I'll come back to that thought in a moment, please. Look at verse 46. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? Like the Ethiopian eunuch from Acts chapter 8. And he says to Philip, Look, all this water's here. What does stop me from being baptized? And they both go into the water. That's total motion again. And Philip baptizes the Ethiopian eunuch. It's the same theme here. But the difference is this. Cornelius and co. are speaking in tongues, 46. Which, if you cross-reference it back to Acts chapter 2. And if you cross-reference it to 1 Corinthians 14. It has to be a known language. Not gibberish. But Cornelius is a slightly difficult character to assess because he was born a Gentile, he's a Roman citizen, he's a Roman officer, he's a centurion, he has a hundred men under his authority, his household seemed to be on the same page as him, his household seemed to have become converted to Judaism, but they're not yet saved. So it's very tricky to try and harmonize these scriptures, and I think the best way is to just read them as they are in the context and offer the best possible uh, interpretation as I'm able to do. But Peter can see what's happening and he says, listen, we've received the Holy Ghost. We can't forbid them to be baptized as well. Look at 48, please. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. But 48 says, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. In Acts chapter 8, we're told in verse 46, in reference to the Samaritans, in reference to Simon Magnus. For as yet he, the Holy Ghost, was fallen upon none of them. Only they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, so keep that in mind. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost. And this verse gets quoted by everybody that comes into the body of Christ. And they think this is in reference to today and it's not. Acts 2.38 Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, Acts 2, Acts 8, to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then in Acts 10, to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Now they could all be the same, but I think that what you are reading here in reference to Acts 10, 48, to be baptized in the name of the Lord, is probably from Matthew 28, where the Lord says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That's just my own private hypothesis. Don't quote me on that, but I don't spend too much time overly dissecting these verses. I think sometimes we can lose the simplicity of Christ, but we were told we not to study. We were told to examine everything. We were told to be Bereans. So it's a very difficult situation for those of us which are Bible students and Bible teachers to take these verses, read them, and apply them doctrinally. I don't think we can do that. So we're going to have to simply read it as it is and leave it as it is. So there you get 48 verses, concluding Acts chapter 10, which is a Gentile number. Number 10 is the number for the Gentiles. A Gentile account from 1 to 10 and start again, whereas a Jew will count from 1 to 7 and start again. But Cornelius, a great man of God, a Jew, converted from Gentile stock, but he's still a Gentile. And this comes 
back to me time after time, what do we do with this man? He's a Gentile, but he has converted to Judaism. So strictly speaking, he is a Jew, but he's still a Gentile. And that's why it says in 45, how they were astonished because that on the Gentiles also has poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. But if I was to read back into the text, this term, the gift of the Holy Ghost, from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul told you this was God's unspeakable gift. And also from Romans 5, that the gift of the Holy Ghost is everlasting life. So this is where, gets, this is where it gets somewhat tricky and problematic to read these verses and try and teach these doctrinally. And I know I keep saying that, but I'm just overly concerned that many of the folks that we speak to are reading Acts of the Apostles and trying to get their experiences to match Acts of the Apostles. You can't do that. What's happening here in Acts of the Apostles is only happening here in Acts of the Apostles. From chapters 11 to 19, and we'll get there over the next several weeks and months, it changes all together. It changes completely. And from 19 to 28, you're very much into the era of the Pauline epistles. In fact, at this point in the early church's history, there are no epistles written to anyone. Now, you might have Matthew's gospel written, and you might have Mark's gospel written, and you might have the epistle of James written. Might, I say. Can't be sure, but you might. But I think that what you're looking at here is still very much an early period of the, in the church's history of different people coming the same way to the Savior to be saved, but coming different routes, and the Lord is dealing with those people from a different perspective. So one more time, the Old Testament saints got saved on believing on a promise, which we believe we are saved by trusting in a person. But the person we trust in, in the New Testament, gave the promise back in the Old Testament. It's still grace. It's always been grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And some of our dispensational brethren will teach that when the rapture is being and gone, and we go into the great tribulation known as Daniel's 70th week, or Jacob's trouble, that the plan of salvation changes. And they teach that one is saved by faith and works. And they go to James chapter 2, and they try and cite James 2 as proof of that uh, view, which I completely disagree with. I will say that you are saved unto good works. Old Testament, church age, great tribulation, and your good works are seen because you are saved. And that's what the Lord is speaking about in Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've done this, you've done that. Enter into the joy of, the, you know, into the joy of my rest. Enter into the promised land. Receive life everlasting. They're not being commended for their good works. They're not being rewarded in the sense that their good works have saved them. They're simply being rewarded for the fact that they are saved and they are producing works which have been seen amongst others. But I think I've covered much ground today and hopefully you've been able to bear with me as I've given you a crash course from Acts 10, trying to explain the two, the two covenants, trying to add extra, extra light, additional light to the idol which was created back in the Old Testament and they were condemned for creating an idol and saying, this is your God which took you out of Egypt. So don't make an image, don't have an idol of the Lord. If you've got a crucifix or a picture or a statue of the Lord, get rid of it. But all I'll say in completion to Acts 10:48 is that they got baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days, probably to build them up, probably to teach them the word of God, probably to further instruct them in the things of the Lord. But this is a great scripture. The Gentiles are now officially welcomed into the early Jewish church, and yet these Gentiles have converted to Judaism pre the new birth. Hence why they are speaking in tongues, because the Jews require a sign. So I won't go beyond that thought, because it can get very confusing when you try and pull all these verses together. But it's grace. It's grace throughout the Old Testament. It's grace throughout the 
church age and it's grace throughout the great tribulation. And I think it's even grace in the millennium. Some people teach that in the millennium, you're saved by works, not faith. That's kind of absurd. I won't have time to spend any time looking at that this morning, but I think all I say in completion to Acts chapter 10 is that Cornelius sought the Lord. He was found of the Lord. Peter was dispatched to him. Peter preaches to him. His household here, the preaching, they believe the message, they get saved, and they speak in tongues. But the eunuch didn't speak in tongues. The Philippian jailer won't speak in tongues. When I got saved, I never spoke in tongues. So you see, be very careful how you deal with these verses. But a great miracle has occurred. Salvation has been offered to Cornelius and co. And they will no doubt go back to their peers and preach to them. So I think I've said all I wanted to say today. I may have slightly gone over time, but I do appreciate you bearing with me. This is a very difficult chapter to read. In fact, I think I spent just under two hours on Acts chapter 10 over the last four Sundays. And you know me, I'll go away, read this chapter again, and if I think there's more light to glean from this piece of scripture, I will come back and offer you an additional thought. But Peter is at his prime here, and we'll see him one more time in Acts chapter 11, and then bye-bye Peter, off he goes into the sunset. And we don't see him again. Pope Peter, I don't think, but a great man of God, a saved Jew, called to do a great work, but you wait till, you wait till Saul of Tarsus arrives on the scene. Well, that man forgot, we will never know. So I'll close today's broadcast there, one last time in verse 48. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. You get saved, you get baptized. But today you get baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Then pray they him to tarry certain days. Build them up if you need to. Grow them in the grace of God if you're able to. And I'm not against fellowship. I might be against organized religion, but I'm not against fellowship. The Bible says where two or three gather, Christ is there in the midst of us. But I've said more than I wanted to say today, and uh, I'll sign it there, and next week we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 11.